You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. The benefits of artificial intelligence are pretty clear. It will allow personalized medicine, for example, revolutionize driving, and present better approaches to dealing with climate change. But of course, there are also drawbacks. Can we recognize those? Can we avoid them? Whether it's AI inventing AI or just bias in the algorithms, who is, who will make the ethical decisions about how we use this powerful technology? Well, we discuss this topic with experts in AI and computing in front of a live audience at the February 2020 meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, or AAAS, and that was in Seattle. Am I in the right spot? I'm happy to sit wherever you jump. We also heard of a novel proposal to create a Hippocratic Oath for AI researchers. I'm Seth Shostak. My name is Molly Bentley. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science. We're going to get underway here in just a moment. Uh, This session is about artificial intelligence and the ethics of AI. And it was fun getting out of our digs here, Seth, and heading up to Seattle. Yes, that's right. I I, I enjoyed the gray weather, but it was fun. So nice to meet you. You know, I've I've done a few of these, although never before a live studio audience. I'm so excited, yeah. And the conversation was terrific, and you're about to hear it. What follows is our discussion with Oren Etzioni, the CEO of the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence up there in Seattle, and Mark Hill, professor of computer sciences at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and chair of the Computing Community Consortium. All right. Here we are at the uh, annual AAAS meeting, that's American Association for the Advancement of Science. We have a live audience, only 10% of which is not alive. And uh, we're going to be talking about the ethics of artificial intelligence. I'm sure all of you have heard something about artificial intelligence, machine learning, self-driving cars, whatever it is. And we're going to talk about, well, is this an unalloyed good? Is it an existential danger? What can we do? Those sorts of questions. And while we will talk up here at the beginning, we expect that you will jump in with your penetrating and insightful questions about halfway through the sessions. So let's welcome our guests. And uh, Molly, do you want to introduce some of the guests? Well, I would like them to introduce themselves because they can say more about themselves than I possibly could. But um, here on my right, for the listening audience on my right, is Mark Hill. And Mark, tell us a little bit about what you do. Okay, I have uh, two hats. I'm a professor at the University of Wisconsin. I'm an expert in computer architecture or hardware. 
uh, but I'm a computer scientist in general. I'm also the chair of the Computing Community Consortium, or CCC, that seeks to catalyze information technology research for the public benefit. So we get researchers, research customers, and research funders together to sort of do good. And we recently did a 20-year roadmap for artificial intelligence with the leaders of AAAI. And so I've been watching AI very carefully uh, as a sort of a closer but a non-expert. And it's been watching you too. Okay, Oren, say hello and um, tell us a little bit about yourself, Oren Nezioni. Hi, so I've been a professor at the University of Washington Computer Science Department for the last 30 years or so. But for the last six years, I've been running a nonprofit research institute uh, founded by the late Paul Allen. It's called the Allen Institute for AI. And our mission is AI for the common good. So unlike AI that's watching you, AI that's targeting ads at you and so on, uh, we're trying to use AI technologies and AI research to make the world a better place in a number of concrete ways. Thank you very much. And, and Seth, have you introduced yourself formally? I haven't. Uh, my name is Seth Shostak, and I am a host of the Big Picture Science podcast and broadcast. We'd like to remind you, you can find us on uh, many stations around the country and even in Canada, if anybody knows where Canada is. And uh, <laughs> beyond that, I'm also an astronomer at the SETI Institute in lovely Mountain View, California. Okay, well, Oren, I'd like to start with you um, because there's something that you propose that gives us an idea of where our thinking about artificial intelligence has come in all these years. And you propose a Hippocratic Oath for AI researchers. And what is your proposal? Well, more than anything, this is a symbol of where our hearts and minds are at rather than a, a policy proposal, say. So when people graduate from medical school, they say a very solemn oath, the Hippocratic Oath, about their intents to treat patients, to act ethically in a position of power. And now uh, data scientists and artificial intelligence practitioners in particular are finding themselves increasingly in a similar highly responsible position. And so I thought as a symbol of that, as a symbol of the recognition that we need to act uh, ethically and responsibly in that context, we should adopt a similar oath. So what I did is I took the words of the oath that said in uh, medical schools and I adapted it to uh, our context. This is published in TechCrunch. If I may, I'll just read a couple Please. of lines. Now, do just we all need to take the oath then after you uh, read yeah, it? Yeah. Who does take the oath? The, the machines or the humans? Um, so a very important <laughs> point here is that in AI, the humans are still very much in control. So I actually think it's a misperception that machines are about to take over. We can get into that discussion. So it's very much, your question is very much on point. We want the humans uh, to take the oath. For example, I wish folks at, uh, say, Facebook said things like, I will respect the privacy of humans for their personal data are not disclosed to AI systems so that the world may know. I will consider the impact of my work on fairness, both in perpetuating historical biases, et cetera, et cetera. So is the idea that the Hippocratic Oath also would be tailored to different organizations, depending on the products that are being created? 
Well, well, th this oath, uh, if you read it, is, is sufficiently general that I think we could all take it uh, with some benefit. Could be extended to computer scientists. Uh, more than anything, it's a declaration of intent and values on our part. But wasn't Isaac Asimov sort of first out of the gate on this with his uh, laws of robotics? Isaac Asimov absolutely had uh, wonderfully visionary three laws of robotics, and those were laws for, uh, for robots. I like to say we mustn't confuse science and science fiction. So those are wonderful laws for the robots of the future, but for AI in the present, we have some uh, different fish to fry. Well, and it should be and noted. I'd like to point out okay, that. Okay, yeah, go ahead, know, Mark. Sorry. Computer science in general and emerging AI and data science, we traditionally, I mean, ethics is kind of new to us because at one time, you know, you're using computers to compute airflow over a wing, and if you made it more efficient, that was an unalloyed good thing. And, you know, there weren't ethical questions. There it's were lot, not ethical questions. There were not you ethical said, yeah. questions. But, you know, now it's a very big difference when you have, like, running a social media company. Is this the first you're hearing of um, Oren's proposal for a Hippocratic Oath? What do you think of that? I think it's an absolutely great idea, and it is the first time I've heard about it, which I guess is a bad sign. <laughs> and we should be said that I think the original Hippocratic Oath was that the physicians had to swear to a number of healing gods. Are you asking people to swear to the gods, or are the gods the future AI? Or is that for a later, is that a later discussion? So, so the oath has, has a long history, but nowadays uh, the modern version, which has no gods in it, is said at medical school graduations. And Mark was mentioning to me how at the University of Wisconsin, they've introduced an ethics course as part of their data science curriculum. And we see that more and more in computer science departments and schools across the country, that people are introducing uh, ethics courses. I would love if at the beginning or at the end of that course, uh, something like this would be covered. If you're introducing ethics courses in Wisconsin, and you have a proposed Hippocratic Oath for people who design these machines, there must be some perceived danger here. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what the perceived danger might be. Well, let's start with you, Mark. Well, the, the, the danger comes from an opportunity, right? Our, our technology has become much more useful and embedded in society, and, and it affects people's lives in, in many different ways. At the lowest level, the technology is amoral, right? It's not immoral, it's not moral. And, but we, we need to be, when we control it, it can be any of those three things. Can you give us an example? Of, I mean, you know, AI is so much embedded in our lives, a part of our lives, that sometimes we don't realize that we depend on it every day. What's an example that comes to your mind of how it is really dominant and, and worrisome, perhaps? Well, let me start with dominant and good. The fact that you can dictate to your smartphone, the fact that you can get translations that are still imperfect, the fact that recommendation systems give you sort of really good recommendations for things, those, those are sort of all good things. Um, you know, there's famous examples that are a little bit more scary, like using uh, machine learning systems to decide whether people are likely to, when they come out of prison, likely to go back to prison. And it turns out that the, the systems themselves were not biased, but they were trained with biased data. And so, Whose fault is it? Is it the computer scientists? Is it the policymakers? Let me come to you, Orrin. Can you give us something that, as Seth said, can you point out one of the dangers, um, one of the uh, areas in which AI that's starting to concern you? That's an example of why you created a Hippocratic Oath. Well, my biggest concern when it comes to AI is about jobs. 
So uh, computers in general uh, are part of a long history of uh, automation. Uh, and uh, as a result, we are losing jobs in various contexts. I like to say that uh, more jobs have been lost to email than to AI so far, but the trend is as computers become increasingly uh, sophisticated, as we build uh, robots and self-driving cars, a lot of jobs, particularly relatively unskilled jobs, are uh, more and more under siege, and we need to do something about that. So I, I think this is a great concern, but we should also look at the long history of job uh, transformation. So McKinsey in, I think it was 2017, had a nice report which guess the future, but it also had some historical data. And in 1850, 60% of jobs in the United States were in agriculture, and now it's down to a couple of percent. And so one of the challenges that happens in this is that we're, it's always easier for us to imagine the jobs that are going to go away than the jobs that are going to be created. That said, if there's going to be this churn in jobs, I think we have a societal responsibility to deal with this, help with retraining, and, and things like that. But, but really, is that historical analog really applicable? Because this is a different kind of machine. This isn't a machine that simply has more energy available to do something that you can't do, like you know, transport goods and so forth. This, these are machines that can do things that only humans can do cognitively. And I, I listened to some guy who you know, was giving a talk about AI. He was in the field. And somebody asked about jobs, and he said, if your job is predictable, if it's repetitive, if you work for H&R Block, you've got 10 more years before that job goes away. And somebody in the audience asked, well, what if my job is writing articles for the newspaper? I mean, not that newspapers aren't going away, but in any case. And he didn't answer that question. He just smiled. So isn't this fundamentally different, Orrin? I think that every time there's a transformative revolution, whether it's the agricultural or the industrial, some things are similar and some things are different. So I think there are many jobs today in transportation and retail, clerical jobs that are road and repetitive and there probably be a lot fewer of those 10, 20 years down the road and new jobs will arise just as Mark said. Here's the key differences. One is uh, this is probably happening faster than before, and so we need to pay extra attention to how we mitigate the, uh, the negative effects. And secondly, as, as you pointed out, more and more is the case that what we consider uh, white-collar jobs, um, uh, jobs for the intelligentsia, are, are under threat. I think that the thing to realize is that we're going to move to more of a partnership model, where AI acts as an advisor as a supporter, as an assistant. It's still the case that most uh, jobs that we do, people say our lawyer's gonna be replaced, our doctor's gonna be replaced, our scientist's gonna be replaced. The answer is no, but they could become a lot more efficient at their jobs using AI software. Well, as long so, as radio broadcasters so, don't become replaced. A model I really like by Moshe Varda is that you can divide jobs simplistically into whether they're cognitive or whether they're manual cross whether they're repetitive or whether they're non-repetitive. The machines are going, are going to take away a lot of the repetitive aspects of jobs. The new jobs are going to be about the non-repetitive parts, and some of that's going to be good because you get to be more creative. Does anybody lament the fact that we no longer have typing pools uh, because word processors came along? I don't think so. Those jobs got better. And that's Mark Hill, professor of computer science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Well, uh, some interesting points. Seth, particularly that idea of a Hippocratic Oath 
for AI researchers. Well, I kind of wonder, Molly. I mean, it sounds good, but if you were a researcher at a university or anywhere else, would you say, look, I've got to take this Hippocratic oath, or would you say, I'm an honest person, I'm an ethical person, forget that oath, I'm not going to swear to anything. Well, certainly we need more mindfulness when it comes to designing our machines and the algorithms. Now, Dr. Etzioni is optimistic, though, that AI and humans will live in this partnership model, um, so he doesn't seem to be too worried. There's more of this discussion to come, including a discussion of automated cars and the bias in the algorithms, and the big question of who is making the decisions about how we use these machines. All that's still to come from our show recorded at the AAAS in Seattle, AI, Where Does It End? on Big Picture Science. This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind souffles, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to youtube.com slash labxnas. That's youtube.com slash X-N-A-S. This is Big Picture Science, and we'll continue our discussion about the ethics of AI, recorded in front of a live audience at the American Association for the Advancement of Science meeting in Seattle. On stage with us in Seattle was Oren Etzioni, the CEO of the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence, and Mark Hill, a professor of computer sciences at the University of Wisconsin. And at this point in the discussion, I had just asked, what is the difference between making beneficial AI, you know, applications that help us, and ethical AI? In other words, is helpful AI the same as ethical AI? Dr. Etzioni is the first to respond. Well, I think one key difference is that we have really a uh, long-term scientific problem regarding how much of our values can we embed in the machine. But a completely separate, although related question is, uh, how do we use the machine beneficially? So let me give three quick examples. First and foremost is autonomous vehicles, right? You can get into all kinds of abstruse ethical questions there with the trolley dilemma, you know, the car is heading towards an accident, does it hit these people, does it hit those people? But a, a much more important question is, can we reduce the number of highway deaths and accidents and injuries uh, in this country? 40,000 highway deaths each year, over a million injuries. As soon as we can roll out 
safer technology that uses AI, we have an obligation to do so, and that's highly beneficial. Another one is the use of AI for the disabled, for people who have trouble seeing, hearing, uh, walking around. You and I can use Google Maps to walk, bike, drive, but if you're in a wheelchair, you don't have a map that tells you what's the best route for somebody in a wheelchair. Why not? Well, the cost of that is high, but we can use AI techniques, computer vision techniques, for example, to drive down that cost. So lots of benefits to AI independent of the ethical questions. Last one, uh, at the Allen Institute for AI, we've built a scientific search engine, a free one called Semantic Scholar, that uses AI to help you cut through the clutter, to help you go through the huge number of papers and finds the ones that you're interested in, home in on the key results, so maybe you don't even have to read the long, uh, complex uh, journal paper. Uh, and all that is using uh, state-of-the-art AI techniques. But, but Oren, can, can I follow up a little bit? Because all, almost all the examples you cite are what I would call robotics, right? I live in Mountain View, California. Google is there. And every day I see four or five, you know, supposedly self-driving cars. There's always a hominid in those cars in case they decide to test the trolley problem by, you know, hitting somebody. But, you know, that's, that's robotics. That's not gonna take my job unless I'm an Uber driver, right? I mean, a truck driver might have their jobs taken by a robot. But when I think of AI, when I think of the long-term future, it's taking those jobs that require thinking that require, you know, not just recognizing the environment and, and plotting out a course across the room, but something that writes the great American novel. Although and, there is some thinking um, involved in autonomous vehicles. You do have to make split-second no, decisions, but, but it doesn't right? have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be conscious. It doesn't have to, you know, but, it has... But Seth, the, Seth, don't you think it's our bias that we're, we're more freaked out about the threat to cognitive jobs than manual jobs? Because I, I saw a recent graphic that said, what is the most common job per state? And in many states, it was some kind of driver. I want to pick up on um, the we in this situation, because I think we, is it, we, the people making these decisions, is something important to look at when we look at uh, what is ethical. So there, there are two parts to this question. And one is, um, Oren, when you said, if we can build safer autonomous vehicles, we are obligated to do so. But, but are we? Who, who is making the decisions to put AI on the road in the first place. So it feels like we've come down this path long enough that now we feel like we are obligated to take it further, we are obligated, but who are the decision makers here? Is it the American public? Are they calling out for AI in, in, their, in their everyday lives? So that's one question. And the other is about the jobs. Um, so let's say AI is replacing jobs that could be done by humans. Is that an ethical dilemma? It's inconvenient, we don't like it, we resist it, but is it immoral? Uh, sorry, those are two big questions. <laughs> I'll let, let you me, think let about Let me take that. the job question okay, for please. a second. I mean, so we live in a system with a private enterprise that seeks to uh, maximize profit, and I, I can't remember the economist's name who talked about creative destruction. We have decided that in the name of progress, we are going to permit disruption. Uh, and so I think that's the system. And then it's up to government to put, uh, you know, restrictions on what private enterprise does when there is a uh, mismatch between what the profit motive suggests and what the societal benefit is, right? Car companies in the past always wanted to have gas guzzlers, and we decided that for society that was not a perfect thing. And I think it's going to be a similar symbiotic thing going forward. 
I agree with Mark in the sense that fundamentally we want to have technological progress. It has so many beneficial uses. At the same time, to your question, uh, Molly, I do think it is very much an ethical question because uh, let's say things play out in a way where there's tremendous job loss. This isn't an inconvenience. This is a major social issue. Uh, it affects income inequality. It affects people's uh, dignity. It affects uh, people's ability to get health care in this country. And so we need to come up with the mechanisms that adjust for that. Retraining people, making sure they have uh, some amount of basic income. I'm not a proponent of universal basic income, but that's a solution that's been proposed. So uh, I think the solution is not to retard progress or to blame technologists. I think the solution is to adapt in a way that's both uh, sustains our economic vitality, but is fair to the weaker members of society. Let's look at some other worrying trends, and I want the audience to think. Um, well, uh, let me ask you: Do you know what deep fakes are? Any of you? I see that, that some people are nodding, and of course, facial recognition technology. Right? These are both um, softwares or applications that are in the news right now. Um, we're troubled by both of them, and they're worrisome, but are they both worrisome trends of artificial intelligence? Are they both examples of AI, deep fakes, and then also facial recognition, widespread facial recognition technology? Well, what I would say is uh, deep fake uh, is a problem that's occasioned by AI because the techniques used, what's called uh, GANs, generative adversarial networks, are very much uh, cutting edge AI techniques. And I actually think it's an even bigger problem than people realize because the technology is rapidly advancing not just to create uh, fake images and fake videos that are very compelling, but to create fake text, fake articles that look like New York Times articles, and even fake bots. And so, uh, for example, Google recently released uh, a state-of-the-art uh, bot technology. Uh, I think, however, that there are solutions. So back in 2017, I supported a regulation to uh, require people to declare, if you're interacting with somebody online, is this a human or, or a bot? And uh, for example, California, just in July 2019, has passed a law uh, requiring bots to self-declare. Uh, so increasing uh, transparency there. I, I won't claim a connection between my article and the law, but I think we're very much moving there uh, in the right direction. And the second thing is uh, we need to think hard about authentication. So when you see a piece come through on social media, whether it's a video or an article, you have to be able to ask, hey, who wrote this? And if it's unauthenticated, we need to get increasingly educated to realize that it might not be authentic. This is what you propose, a digital signature, right? Yes. A di digital yes. signature. Well, it sounds like a self-declaratory Turing test. I'm going to give you the answer. I'm a bot or I'm not a bot, but I'm worried about something that I, I do hope we can get to here just for a minute or two before we go to the questions. Uh, and that is the bots might lie. Right? Because they didn't, they didn't sign up on the Hippocratic Oath here. Now, I'm not worried about it in this particular instance, but looking down the road, you know, 50 years, right, I, I, at that point, and I asked uh, the head of the AI department at Stanford years ago, I said, are we going to have a, a machine that by 2050 can write the great American novel? And he just looked at me and he said, yes. And then he went back to sleep. Okay, so it's what's coming in the next generation that actually scares me. It's not the facial recognition, the deep fakes, all that. We can think of solutions to that. But what happens 
when we're not the smartest thing on the planet, and we have no control over their future ethical or non-ethical behavior. Again, I, I think it's a great question. I have a lot to say about that, but I just want to still alert people to what I would consider a clear and present danger. So it's happened in the 2016 election in a uh, primitive but apparently quite effective way, the creation of bots. In the upcoming election, there will be quite sophisticated bots uh, creating controversy, trying to sway people with quite sophisticated tests. So it's not going to be the great American novel, but uh, are we even going to get to write the great Amer the next great American novel if there's such strong rogue interference, Russian and others, in our election using AI technology? So I think we need to work on the present dangers now and separate them from the ones that are 50 years hence. In a moment, I want to turn to questions from the audience. I see that there's at least one. I want to do, ask one more question about facial recognition technology because this has really accelerated in its use. There was a, this case by the ACLU. Did anyone hear about the ACLU um, running the faces of all the members of Congress through its facial recognition system? Has anyone heard this? And it incorrectly matched 28 members of Congress and identified them as criminals. Okay, whatever you might think about that. It disproportionate enough for um, people of color. So we have biases in the system, there are biases in the algorithms, and it raises the question of, are the systems only as good as the people who are programming the systems? So I'm coming back to this, this question of who is making these decisions, who, who are designing these algorithms. They're not necessarily democratic, small d democratic decisions that are being made. It's a small group of people. So I think you're absolutely right in that the origin, the original sin, if you will, of the bias that we find in these systems is the, the data and the design of the algorithms. And so it does very much come from people. And people have said that to some extent these AI systems are laundering uh, past bias uh, into, uh, into future prediction. I, I think the right way to think about this is that we're still at the early stage stages of understanding how this technology works and we've made some very real mistakes and we absolutely have to uh, watch against them both by analyzing the data by auditing these systems by having the right people uh, in the loop in designing the systems but this is really uh, a dialectic there isn't going to be a perfect algorithm uh, there's going to be algorithms, there's going to be the ACLU, there's going to be regulatory agencies, and this is much more of a kind of marketplace or uh, elites competing, and I think the outcome we're headed towards can actually be a very positive one, because remember that human, human biases uh, have been dormant and hidden. The human biases are not new, and this technology is actually helping to expose them. You point out the problems when it doesn't work perfectly, and we'll make it work better. There's also a problem when it works pretty perfectly, right? You know, like, for example, we, in privacy, there's this balance with, that requires a search warrant. So the thing is difficult. You have to have probable cause. So when you have facial recognition, you change the cost of being able to recognize people doing things, and it, it can violate their privacy. And so as a country, we'll have to decide what's the right balance of when it can be used. Because it, there are some uses that could be very good. You would like good facial recognition after a Boston Marathon bombing. But you don't want it all the time seeing what suspicious thing Seth might be doing. Yes. Well, we should say that facial recognition now, um, when we talk about the benefits and the concerns, is being used in controlling uh, coronavirus. But it's mandatory. 
So you have to identify to the authorities in China where you've been, and they will look at your phone, and you could say that that's that's for the that's for the common good. There may be a very strong argument that that's for the common good. Well, you, of course, it can also be used for surveillance. You bring up China, and China and AI is an interesting thing. I mean, the United States is and Europe are struggling with many different issues about AI and what's the rights of society. Uh, China has chosen a different balance. Questions from the audience. You do not have to give your name, but if you would like to give your name, you may do so as well. So I am very concerned about the whole issue of ethics in AI. So I'm, I'm going to use a really crude example. I used to work for a major consumer electronics company that had a camera system so you could play. So first generation was released. It didn't work for anybody who had dark skin. And there were a ton of people who beta tested it, but none of them had dark skin, and so no one noticed. But when I think about AI, Oren, do you have people sort of whose expertise is in ethics working uh, in your institute who are working with people who are developing things or who are available to startups, for example, you know, they want to get something built and out there. And I don't think ethics is a major issue for them or a concern. And so I'm wondering what's, what is going let, on. Let me summarize that a bit. Um, the, the, the idea that some facial recognition systems, for one, cannot detect dark skin is not, is not trivial. But then also to um, the woman's point of whether or not you have, you said an ethicist on board at the Allen Institute. So when we do basic research, uh, like any university, we, we publish it and make it available to uh, scrutiny that way. When we build uh, actual systems that are deployed uh, where there can be human impact, absolutely we consult with uh, ethicists and, uh, and so on. I should also mention that uh, because of our focus on AI for the common good, we don't make use of user data. So uh, these kinds of applications for surveillance or other things are not things we do at the Allen Institute for uh, AI. Oren Etzioni, the CEO of the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. More to come from our conversation with him and Mark Hill in our discussion about artificial intelligence, including the topic of neural networks and whether putting restraints on AI actually defeats the purpose of creating these advanced thinking systems in the first place. It's AI, where does it end on Big Picture Science? Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. We continue with the final segment of our discussion about the ethics of AI. Uh, this was recorded before an audience at the AAAS meeting in Seattle. Was it a live audience? <laughs> well, I, I saw the move occasionally. Some guy twitched. Joining us on stage were Oren Etzioni and Mark Hill. And we continue with our questions from the audience. We're here at the AAAS, that's American Association for the Advancement of Science annual meeting in lovely Seattle, Washington, the home of mostly trees. You gentlemen up here, 
thank you. My name is Benny Moles. I'm a science journalist from the Netherlands, specialized in AI and robotics. And I have a question for Ern Etzioni. Uh, one of the cognitive abilities that humans are much better at at the moment than machines is common sense. And I do know that your institute is working on this. My question is, can you, can you mention some low-hanging fruit that you can pick over the next years and that people can see in practice uh, machines getting more common sense than they have now? Sure. So let me just get a little bit of context here. I like to say that common sense is kind of the dark matter of artificial intelligence in the sense that it surrounds everything, it affects everything, but at the same time it's almost ineffable, hard to detect. And what exactly do I mean by common sense? Common sense is what all of us would agree on, but computers have no clue about. Like if I put my socks in the drawer, they'll still be there tomorrow. Or uh, a jumbo jet is unlikely to be able to fit through the keyhole of a door. Uh, this is all stuff that as soon as I say, you'll say of course, but why would a computer know that? So uh, the low-hanging fruit is to design uh, systems that can acquire common sense by reading billions of sentences. We now have uh, systems that, to a shallow degree, can read billions of sentences and infer all kinds of modest tidbits of common sense from that data. This was a good question. Can I ask you to follow up a little bit on that? Because isn't it Did the you case... Just show off by... With your it's, Dutch it's not just showing now? off. There are millions of people who speak that language <laughs> imperfectly, but okay. <laughs> but isn't it the case, Oren, that the kind of jobs that are not uh, under threat, or at least under direct threat, are things like you know woodcutters in the forest, or 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 even janitors, because they have to make all these common sense decisions about you know where the hallway goes next or where the next tree is. You're absolutely right. Uh, common sense is one of the holy grails of AI and one of the most difficult things uh, to conquer. So if your job involves common sense judgments in unpredictable situations, not the same judgment uh, every day, then uh, you should feel good about that. Mark, I want to ask you a question. Do you still have a question? Uh, gentlemen in the audience, you, you put your hand down. It's kind of related. Okay, meditate on that for just a moment. Um, Mark, I wonder if it's too late for this discussion on um, ethics because you have said, and, and this is not a new idea, not that your ideas aren't new, but in this particular instance, that a lot of AI systems are black boxes and um, they can do something, um, but they can't tell us why they can do that. And in fact, we've already at a point where we don't know how they're making the decisions that they're making. Haven't we already lost control? So, Oren knows the technology better than me, but the most successful AI technology right now are deep neural networks. And deep neural networks, so if you Can you give just a quick definition of a deep neural network, please? It's an interconnected graph with edges and weights that learns a function. So you might have learned algebra and a function like x squared plus one, if you give it some data, you know, you give it two, it comes out with five. If you give it three, it comes out with 10. If you give it enough data, a deep neural network could learn that function. Now that's a stupid way to handle a parabola. But if the function that you want to learn is whether or not there is a pedestrian in this image, you can feed it a whole bunch of data and it spits out a yes or no for the specific instances that it was trained on and for others with amazing accuracy. But we don't completely know yet how it works 
and there's all kinds of questions. Can you explain what it's doing? Is it robust if you change these things? These are all completely unknown things. Did I, what, what, did I get what? anything wrong, Warren? Uh, you had it exactly right. I would just add that these kind of computational mechanisms are loosely inspired by the brain, which is why they're called uh, neural networks or deep learning. What, what, what about uh, Google's experiment? They had, I think, 16,000 processors. They let it loose on the internet and it found cats. But it still doesn't know what a cat is. It could just recognize cats better than most cats can do. Is that, is that the same sort of neural yeah. network? Yes. Okay. I want to go back to uh, Molly's original question about uh, is it too late and the black box nature of AI. So first of all, on any question with AI and AI ethics, is it too late? Absolutely not. Uh, to paraphrase John Doerr in a different context, we are still 10 seconds from the Big Bang. We're still very much in the early days of AI systems. Because of what Mark said about deep learning systems being uh, relatively narrow, because there's just so much more to this. You know, the enterprise of AI is an enterprise of becoming increasingly humble in the face of the sophistication of human intelligence and human learning. We're going to take a, another question here, and then I will turn the, the conversation into some challenges that I have for creating ethics for AI. In other words, I'm going to argue the other side for doing so. Yes, sir. So yesterday I ran into Molly, and she challenged me to ask a question today at the podcast. And that the makes last it sound like two, you're a plant, which the you last are not. Two, I'm not. This is a you're you know, free, free will. Free we still thought. have free will. Free will and free thought. It's and, not a bot. Uh, my question <laughs> relates sort of to that, and the last two questions may have rendered it unnecessary. Um, but, you know, there's this concept around AI and the study of AI related to philosophy and something called the incorrigibility of the mental and this logical aspect of creating maybe a human mind. This is a little more heady side of things. Um, no pun intended. And I'm going to ask, do you believe it's logically possible to identify all aspects of the human mind to the extent that it could be established in a synthetic counterpart? This is an easy one for, uh, you know, we used to debate this in college. I've, I've been studying AI for way too long. And the easy one is like this. If you're an atomist, uh, a materialist, right? Not in the sense that you like to shop at Amazon, but in the sense that you believe that everything is made of atoms. If so, there's no reason to believe that uh, particular carbon-based technologies have uh, a real advantage, uh, a fundamental scientific advantage over silicon-based technologies. The short answer is, yes, you can create a brain uh, using different uh, hardware, and so you can create a human mind. It's a very hard problem. We're far from solving it, but fundamentally, there is no barrier. This is getting to the, the question of challenging this idea of putting constraints on AI, because isn't the strength of an artificial, artificially intelligent system is that it is autonomous and free to make decisions, um, and it needs to pursue unthought of off-the-leash reasoning to come up with innovative ideas. Don't you constrain that once you try to constrain AI itself? In other words, is autonomous AI and safe AI at odds with each other? No. Uh, <laughs> okay, next let's question. Just, let's just be clear. So let me give a concrete example of why I say that so, so strongly. Uh, I think it's very reasonable to believe that any device we build, whether it's our blender or whether it's an incredibly sophisticated and autonomous AI system, should have an off switch. 
so we don't find ourselves in this situation uh, in 2001 Space Odyssey. Now, having an off switch, meaning that the human retains the ability to turn the damn thing off, does not mean that you will constrain its creativity, its ability to, to solve cancer, uh, its ability to invent phenomenal new carbon capture technologies. We still need an off switch, and we should have one. Do you think yep. we'll always have an off switch, Mark? I do, and I also want to comment on the, the uh, building the brain. So in theory, it's possible, but we are like a million times less energy efficient in our current computers than the human brain is. And, and it's a failure of me and other computer architects to organize the computers better. Yeah, but wouldn't you say, Mark, I mean, come on, the rejoinder to that is a jet engine might be 100 times less efficient in terms of energy in versus you know, work done I mean, humans might be much better than gasoline engines, but that doesn't mean that gasoline engines haven't replaced humans in a lot of areas. Okay. Point taken. Okay. All right. After four billion years of bottom-up engineering, we're the smartest things on the planet, right? And we're capable of doing very sophisticated things. Not always smart, though. But still, what's going to happen? And not in the next 10 years. Facial recognition, auto-driving auto cars, you know, even the, the robot that'll take care of me in my old age... Where is it today? Uh, you know, what's the long-term prospect here? Is the 21st century the last century in which humans run the planet? So now to get into uh, long-term and uh, speculation and science fiction, again, with all these caveats, I, I would say the following. It's very easy for me to entertain a future where computers are increasingly smarter than we are along many, many dimensions. And that includes, for example, even today, right, when I want to do a mathematical computation, I'll do it via a calculator or via uh, a computer program. My son, increasingly, when it comes to history and facts, like population figures, just goes to our uh, digital assistants, right? I, I train myself not to say Alexa or Google, because uh, uh, we always seem to be three feet away. Uh, Kissinger bemoaned the fact that you no longer have to remember and study all, all this historical background, because it's so much available in our fingertips. That trend is going to accelerate. But intelligence and autonomy are very different things. I do think we need to protect our democracy and our rights as, as, as humans. And so the fact that there's going to be these machines that are phenomenal in various calculations, phenomenal in various cognitive tasks, doesn't mean that they get uh, to take over. So I guess uh, I've been called by Max Tagmark a, uh, a wetware chauvinist. But I admit, you know, some of my best friends are humans, and I'd like to keep our human position sacrosanct. And interestingly, uh, Dr. Tegmark has started a, um, an organization looking at the ethics of AI as well in um, Cambridge. Any last, any thoughts on that, Mark? And then I'm going to ask the big picture question here. No, I'll <laughs> no, pass. No, you'll pass. Save the brain power for what's coming next. Well, when we brought you all out here, it was to answer this question, explore this, this question, AI, where does it end? And we should make good on the title of this session. So I will ask that, where does it end? Because I wonder if this whole discussion will be moot once the AIs are inventing the AIs? And will we have an agreement on what good is? Will they inherit the human ethics yeah, at that point? Well, so don't, you, don't you think it's irrelevant? When the machines design their successors, then what's in those successors is what the machines find interesting to do. Exactly. So the, the question for um, our guests here, the final big picture question is AI, where does it end? 
you know, Oren said, if we design these systems so that we control them, then we can retain control, even though they design better versions of themselves. But I think it's also really important that who's the we? It can't just be the technologists. Society has to be engaged, has to make policy, has to require scientists to put in the mechanisms that can implement the policy, right? We technologists shouldn't decide what fairness is society should decide. Excellent. And that's one of the reasons that Mark is heading up this 20-year um, roadmap for the future of AI. So this is definitely on his mind. Oren, the big picture question, where does it end? AIs inventing other AIs and humans are redundant at best, uh, extinct at worst? For the foreseeable future, uh, humans will be in charge. And as Mark said, society needs to make the value judgments. But as you're encouraging me, to go beyond that, uh, I apologize, but there's so much idle uh, speculation on what happens beyond that, beyond the foreseeable horizon, and I'd like to paraphrase uh, Dr. McCoy from Star Trek. I'm a scientist, damn it. I'm not a futurist or philosopher, so I will decline to speculate beyond the foreseeable horizon. Or as Yogi Berra says, predictions are hard, especially about the future. Well, thank you very much. So it looks like for now, for now, humans still have some control and are the decision makers behind this technology. This is the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences annual meeting in Seattle, Washington, and we want to thank our live audience for being here and still being cleverer than the machines. The heading for the meeting is Envisioning Tomorrow's Earth, and I think we delivered on that promise here this morning. Thank you very much, Mark Hill, and also to Oren Etzioni, um, what a delight to speak to both of you. Thank you, and to everyone else. Thank you. Thank you to the guests who joined Seth and me on stage for this conversation about AI. Oren Etzioni is the CEO of the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence, and Mark Hill is professor of computer science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the chair of the Computing Community Consortium. This show was recorded at the American Association for the Advancement of Science meeting in February 2020 in Seattle. Well, we, we gave an outline of the big picture, and it looks like that for now, humans will remain in the loop with AI, and we don't need to worry much? Well, I don't know. I, I have to say that uh, the comment that Oren Etzioni made about how people regarded him as kind of a champion of wetware, you know, <laughs> the human brain over the machines, I mean, that was nice to hear. I, I just hope he's right. And he also said that sometimes when you see something clearly, you mistake it for being nearby, Right, which is to say, if you can see the machines taking over, that doesn't mean they're about to do it. But to that question of how do we create ethical AI, it sounds like we need to be conscious of how we develop this technology. Don't just do it to fill a gap in the market or because there's demand or because we can. We need to be thinking about how we're developing this technology because it is powerful technology. We've heard from both of these gentlemen that ethics is something they do consider. And, you know, uh, whatever you think of the sincerity of that, it's a little different than the kind of inventiveness that was manifest, say, in the 19th and even the 20th century, where up until the time of the atomic bomb, you know, the people who were making the research 
didn't really worry too much about the ethics. And as uh, Mark Hill said, that even computer scientists 30 years ago weren't thinking about the ethics of what they were doing, but now they need to. And whether or not you think that AI researchers should take a Hippocratic oath, whether or not that would make a difference, the fact that Oren Etzioni has suggested that we do that gives you a sense of how important that issue is to researchers or some researchers today. Well, personally, I don't think that researchers are going to take a Hippocratic Oath or any other kind of oath, but they'll be judged by their research. But society will judge them too. And if they're doing something that society perceives as either unethical or harmful in some other way, you know, they'll get that feedback. We'll see it happen. Thank you to the exceptional intelligence of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin, who were with us in Seattle. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization whose scientists are using machine learning to better recognize signals that might betray extraterrestrial intelligence. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners. This episode of Big Picture Science is AI. Where does it end? If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, will you find past episodes in our archive at bigpicturescience.org, and you'll find links there to the guests you've heard as well. You may be listening to our radio show over the airwaves, but you can also catch PyPySci on the web by subscribing to the PyPySci podcast. You'll find links on our website to the platforms that carry us. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.